Welcome to the Dr. Finlayson Fife Interview Archive. We are so glad that you're here. Don't forget to visit the website and take advantage of the Christmas sale. Now through Christmas, all of the courses are 20% off with additional discounts available when you buy multiple courses. Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife is a sexuality and relationship coach, as well as a licensed clinical professional counselor with a PhD in counseling psychology from Boston College, and she's an active Mormon. She did her doctoral dissertation on LDS women and sexuality. And on today's episode, we discuss everything from high-waisted mom jeans to God's wife, the power of lipstick, and everything in between. You know, I, I, I grew up Mormon, and um, yeah. I, I consider myself a retired Mormon, but it's yeah, still uh-huh. like a really important part of my sure. heritage and who I am. And yeah, so I refer and sort to of your... Yeah, perfect. They're my yes. people, so I refer to yep. it a lot. Yeah. Great, excellent. Okay, so one second. I'm just going to put on some lipstick quickly. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> uh, oh, here we go. I just, my IQ goes up when I have it on. <laughs> you know, there's something about this business of uh, um, letting the body lead the mind, you know, and how you put on a certain outfit or you, yeah. it, then you're, it, it kind of modifies your, your mind and your behavior. Do you 100%. see that? Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's partly why I like being dressed up. I do, tr- I do it more than the normal person out there <laughs> Yeah, because I like it and I like how I feel. And I like how I engage in myself, you know, so I agree with that. I love that. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's fascinating because as a kid, you know, um, it's easy to resent having to dress up to go places, but then yeah. it's interesting as an adult to start to realize like, oh, there's actually something to that. There's value in it. I was talking to my mom and sister about this last night. Like I miss a society, like my mother-in-law was telling me when she was a kid, she would dress up with gloves and hat and get on the train and go into San Francisco with her mother to go shopping. Mm-hmm. And everyone that was in the stores was, it was an event and it like highlighted it as special. And she said, you know, we just don't have that in society anymore. And you know, yeah. One thing, if you have to always be dressed up, but it's another thing when you kind of never get to be. <laughs> I totally agree. You, you diff- you, yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, it's interesting to see how the tables have turned on that so much. So I know it's, it's wonderful. We'll get it back. We might. I hope so. I'm yeah. all for it. Yeah. So maybe, and maybe we'll even connect a dot here. You posted something on Instagram this morning that I thought was really, mm. really interesting. And, mm-hmm. and I'll, I'll read it to the audience. A lot of us are terrified of pleasure. We think that righteousness and spirituality are antithetical to pleasure. Being anti-pleasure is as anti-spiritual as indulgent pleasure is. Yes. I thought that was really interesting. You know, one, yes. Uh, because Mormonism and I think a lot of other Christian uh, belief systems have this um, thing about demonizing sensuality and pleasure, yes. things like that. So um, yes. I've been curious to hear you unpack that a bit more about our relationship mm-hmm. between sensuality and spirituality. Okay, perfect. So it's something I've just been thinking about more lately because I'm working on a book um, around this topic, but you know, it goes back all the way to like Freud, who talked about the id and the ego and the superego. Mm-hmm. Because when we're young in our development, we don't have much ego, which is this sort of integrated self. But we vacillate a lot between the id, which is this kind of indulgent pleasure, and the superego, which is about should and expectation and kind of the denial of pleasure is to be a good citizen or to be a good person. So there's something primitive, and I don't mean it's just religion that does this to people. It's kind of early developmental where it feels like those two realities are in competition with one another, that you're either out getting what you want, eating too much ice cream, looking at naked ladies, <laughs> you know, yeah. or you're living this dutiful, upright life that's devoid of pleasure. And I think, you know, I think Mormon theology um, and other theologies actually do aspire to an integration of the body mm. and an integration of sensuality and being able to be more human as a pathway to being more spiritual and enlightened. So you said something a second ago about it being primitive. So yes. do, you, do you think that this instinct of, of having um, 
kind of a conflict between those two drives has any uh, like evolutionary value like in, in, in our, yeah. from our caveman this is ancestors. how I I'm not an anthropologist or a psychobiologist even, but I sure. guess where my mind goes is that it's it can be very protective to be anxious about indulgence, right? <laughs> so until psychologically you grow up a bit, to be in an anxiety-based relationship to pleasure or sexuality or sugar, you know, excessiveness probably is protective to your overall well-being. And so when you're psychologically immature and still dependent, you want to, it makes sense that you would be uh, ambivalent about pleasure. In adult psychological development, this integration becomes possible where you start becoming more at peace with your humanity, more at peace with sensuality, more at peace with sexuality. But the, it's not just like, hey, I can do what I want. There's really an integration of the morality and the pleasure to create something qualitatively different. But psychologically, you can also navigate it and handle it. Right. Where do you think people get hung up on this? I, I was having a conversation with a friend last night who was sharing um, her journey uh, on this this very path of mm. coming to a place of integration and being in right relationship with her sensuality and her um, experience of pleasure. And it's, it seems that uh, that's a common speed bump. Mm -hmm. And so what, yeah. what do you think, what, what is that speed bump for most adults? Well, I think there's at least a couple that come to mind and there be maybe many more that I'm just not thinking of yet. But, you know, I think that, um, first of all, most people get handed a tradition and ideology around sensuality and pleasure that's very unhelpful. Both men and women do. And this is what I wrote my dissertation on is LDS women and sexual agency and looking at sort of gender role ideology and how it impacts women's ability to be integrated sexually. And, you know, working with a lot of, of Latter-day Saint men, I see a lot of negative impact around the messaging and being at peace with one's sexuality and sensuality. So a lot of times well-intended teachers and parents or parents who themselves are very anxious about sexuality are handing down the same frame that they're stuck in because they can't see their way out of it. So there is clearly that piece uh, that people are explicitly linking this denial of the good or denial of sexuality and pleasure with good. But I think there's also, when I think about moral development, spiritual de development, sexual development, people that get caught in sort of black and white worlds or authority-based worlds also often come out of homes that were more chaotic or where there was abuse. So they don't trust the world. They don't trust the predictability of their own actions having positive impact. So they are often drawn to a much more black and white authoritarian reality and so we'll take refuge in a kind of rigid moral system. Okay. So they, because of the chaos, they seek something that's very easily definable. And then that translates into their sexual and sexual yes. life. Right. For okay. Exactly. Or for example, somebody may be sexually abused. So they will say like, just dismiss this entirely, but it doesn't require that level of explicit sexual abuse. It can even be, I don't trust myself. I don't trust human beings. I don't trust a partner because I've come out of a relational world that's unpredictable, chaotic, or abusive. So they shut down their this integration, and they and they live in a more rigid psychological state. So you're saying this can happen to people that even people that didn't have like outright obvious abuse in their childhood. Absolutely. Yes, exactly. It, it's more like what's the relational world that I know because we easily replicate it. And if it doesn't make room for your humanity and compassion for our basic flawed state and yeah. celebrate embodiment and sensuality, it's it's hard for a lot of people to carve a path that's so unfamiliar. And when you say relational world, can you paint that picture a little bit more in terms of uh, like the childhood situation? What does that what does that mean? Yeah, well, you know, for example, people that come out of more harsh systems grow up with this basic sense of non-safety. 
So they may know like, don't do this or dad will blow up. Don't do this or mom will get really demanding. So they just learn a world that doesn't make room for their humanity. You know, you, 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 you spill the milk, the, the metaphor, you know, the, uh, the, whatever you spill the milk and you have parents who blow up at you. There's this idea, there's no room to be human, but you also go and you expect that harsh world. You, you may want someone to love you, but you also tend to be drawn to somebody who will be harsh or you will be harsh and you don't mm. expect a sense of freedom. So it's hard to take your clothes off and open your heart and body up and really be at ease when you expect human beings to be harsh and unforgiving. So you're okay. Let me see if I'm, I'm reading this right. <laughs> so mm, yeah, if, sure. you had, if you had parents that had hot tempers that yeah. were unforgiving, that punished you more than you should have been or weren't abusive, but just like were yeah. real, maybe too demanding, yeah. this, this can make it hard for you to be vulnerable sexually. Absolutely. And vulnerable emotionally to even like because really, that leads to it. yeah. You, to even create a friendship where you really let yourself be knowable. A lot of people grow up uh, uh, living in behind masks of what do I think is acceptable? And they may do it to themselves and other people will be rigid with other people. So they're also not a good partner to somebody else. They have a hard time being accepting and compassionate towards another. So even though they may get through the act of sex or they may, you know, achieve orgasm or whatever, there's a kind of, um, inhibition or wall that exists. It's not that intimate. It's not that free. It's not that open-hearted. Wow. It doesn't evolve easily because they can't sort of bring novelty and show parts of their erotic mind and self to the other because they're constantly managing, how am I seen here? Oh yeah. And part of that, how am I seen is just human. We all do it. We all start in that reflected sense of self. Sure. But if you come out of a harsher world, it's easy to get stuck in it. And from your, your understanding, what age ranges are we talking here? Like when do these, what are these formative years? So there's a, there's a whole developmental literature, mm -hmm. um, around, you know, the evolution of morality and the evolution of psychology and relationships. And that literature is kind of based on the most ideal or optimal, what's possible, the minimal range. So you can't move out of a kind of authoritarian black and white world that's focused on your safety much sooner than age seven or eight. So if you are in the most ideal situation, you know, because you're so dependent and young, you can't help but be self-centered because your, your psychological mind just doesn't know another world. But also this preoccupation with safety is important when you're seven and fully dependent sure. to track what's expected of me and what's going to keep me from being harmed or keep people taking care of me when you're from age eight to about 18 is ideally, but, but 30% of the population never grows out of that first stage. So they're more, they're <laughs> so seriously, and, <laughs> no, and it's really true. So they, they really don't. So they still live in a world that's much more authoritarian based. They're looking for authoritarian figures. Age eight to 18 is the psychology of civilization, of a group that can be concerned with law and order, concerned with actions and consequences, holding people accountable, um, everybody having a role within that society. Mm. Um, church organizations do a good job, actually, of facilitating the movement from that primitive into that, comp that kind of sense of contract with one another, that we all have a role and a place and a job and a duty. Right. It's much more role-based. Yeah, It's still based on kind of how you're seen by the other and you're trying to earn a sense of legitimacy by being a good part of that community and that society. Yeah, And it's a very important stage. And another 30 to 40% of the population will stay in that stage. Of, of finding identity in their role? In their role and within their group. And many people okay. are married within a role-based frame. You're the provider. I'm the caregiver. Yeah. You know, you take care of me. I take care of you. But it's it's more like you're earning a sense of self through what you provide, through what you do. But it's not as intimate. It's more intimate than a stage one marriage right. or a stage one relationship. But it's still highly role focused and place in the community focused. So what comes another third. So then st what I'm, I'm, when I'm say stage one, two, three, I'm putting these in gross categories. Sure. So the, the literatures are much more nuanced around this, but sure. stage three is kind of the continental divide in psychological development. I work from a differentiation based frame. 
And so when people become more psychologically differentiated, they grow out of this need for a reflected sense of self, for other people to define who they are. Now, none of us fully grow out of it. We all may long to or want to, but we all are kind of still acutely aware of what others think about us and so on. Right. But how much you define your life and your choices by it is, is a determinant in your psychological maturity. That continental divide is to move more into a deeper um, self-reference than an external reference. You, it is an integration of stages of one and two. So it's not like I'm doing whatever I want because I'm self-defining. Okay, um, That's more stage one or two where you're rebelling against the authority. Right. Okay. But this is more where you've integrated those ideals and those societal ideals and those societal contracts internally, but you're not as dependent on approval. And so you can think more autonomously and choose more autonomously and live up to to use an LDS phrase, the measure of your creation, like mm. to be more uniquely who you are yeah. because you're not looking for everybody to tell you you're okay. Wow. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. And like when high waisted jeans came back in, <laughs> my daughter and I were like, they are so ugly. I'm like, these are like the things that we wore in the eighties. I hate them. Sure. And about, you know, six months later, I bought a pair and my daughter's like, you're brainwashed. You did. <laughs> You're still a and social that, animal. <laughs> exactly. I'm still exactly right. And I'm like, they're cute. <laughs> and, you know, here you, and I know when someday I'm going to be looking at photographs, like, what were we thinking? But anyway. <laughs> Isn't that funny, though, how, how yeah. that happens? Like we, we start out with like these new trends come along and at first we're like, yeah. oh, my gosh, how could that yeah. ever be a thing? What are people thinking? And then sure enough, a yeah. year later, you know. Right, right. We've been inducted into a way of thinking that we can't even see. We're so vulnerable to that as human beings. Even What's, if you're highly differentiated, you still are getting influenced so much more than you know, and your mind's being shaped yeah. by your group way more than you know. What do you think? And so, yeah. What, what do you believe the root of that is? Well, survival. Ah. <laughs> I think, you know, you groups matter to us. Like, you know, as I taught in differentiation theory, there's two things that matter to human beings always. And it's a cool part of being human being, but it's also a source of a lot of pain, which is we want to belong to our group. It is about survival. How does this group function? How do you know that you belong? How are you going to be protected by this group? Not, not being unfair to people is part of your own survival because, you know, people that are, are exploitative get tossed out of the community usually. So I think there's this, um, you know, so, so we want to belong. We want to know we have a place. So that's attachment, right? But then we want to belong to ourselves, to our own identity, to our own conscience, our own agency, our own uniqueness. And those two pieces are always operating. And when we're immature, it feels like they're in contradiction and that you get one or the other. Either I do belong to you and do what you want, or I belong to myself and do what I want, but it fractures our relationship. And a lot of marriages in those primitive stages are just in a control struggle around who's going to prevail. Mm. So this is my long way of saying <laughs> that belonging is a safety thing for human beings. We don't, we get, if you think about how our complex our societies are, there's not a single thing that isn't, that doesn't affect and shape my life and my ability to survive. That isn't highly dependent upon the minds and creations and creativity and offerings of other people. And so yeah. there's no getting around that. So, um, so you're saying that yeah. your decision to finally buy high-waisted jeans is rooted in your instincts for survival? Exactly. <laughs> I don't want people to be like, why are you wearing those low-waisted jeans? She looks nasty. Yeah, right. <laughs> oh, your caveman ancestors would be so proud. It's true. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I love that. Mm -hmm. So what do you exactly. think about this idea? I mean, you'll, you'll be able to quote it for sure, but was it Freud who talked about um, our idea of God is really just a template of our parental experience? Yeah, I think that is a Freudian idea, and I can't remember how he said it. Um, yes. But it's basically and, like whatever your relationship to your father was is pretty yeah, you're much gonna, that's you're gonna, the that's interject. Your, that's your, you're your gonna, view of God. That's right. You project that onto. And I think there's a great deal of truth in that. I think that sometimes people's idea of God is a step or two ahead of their parent. But sometimes I've had people who are in a lot of conflict with their faith or their sense of God to write a dialogue with God. Mm -hmm. And so I have them write like, what do you want to say to God? What would God say back? 
and it it exposes for me the the god in their mind and yeah. it's often a very scary figure it's it's often like worse than my worst client right I mean, you know? <laughs> you read, you've read the old testament right right exactly <laughs> right exactly and so a lot of times people are worshiping a very like they shouldn't worship that god yeah. they should disbelieve that god for their own ability to be free and to live well and they need their sense of god to evolve and you know i think that we start often with that parent parental interject that we put on to god but the way you live will change your view of what is god and what is good and what is divine yeah but you can't really understand it unless you're living in a higher way I, I was just meeting with a couple this morning who they said, you've been saying these words, but it wasn't until they finally stopped doing their, their control struggle with each other and started, gave up the fight, dropped mm -hmm. the rope as they say it. And they, then they stepped into an entirely different experience of the relationship of sex of themselves, much more compassionate, much more, but it's like, they're like, I, like now I get what you've been saying, but you can't understand it until you start to live it until you give up the sort of false gods that run your life. Can we make this a little more personal? Mm. Will you tell me about your experience in um, moving from your conception of God being uh, just a, a projection of your parents into um, mm -hmm. your current experience of the divine? What, what's, yeah. your, what's your oh. path then? Like, no, oh, that's cool. That's I mean, that might be a long conversation. Let me make it efficient. <laughs> um, you know, I had, I had parents that loved me. I mean, they were imperfect and, and, um, but I, I did have an idea of a God that knew me and loved me. Mm -hmm. um, and that was very helpful for me because when I was in middle school and high school and was socially super awkward, had hair about a foot and a half off my head because it's quite thick and I got a perm, nice. which was a very bad idea. <laughs> And I was a scrawny body and I had these Coke bottle glasses and I was genuine. I mean, everyone's socially awkward in seventh grade, but I was really socially awkward. I really was. And so I had this deep sense of being not understood. And so I, I really was able to borrow this sense of a God that knew me and cared about me. And that was helpful for me. The only problem was that the God that I had in my heart and mind saw men as being more important than women. Hmm. because that was part of my faith tradition. It was also part of my parental system where my father, because he provided and was the leader and was a church leader, made the rules much more than my mom did. And so I believe God loved me, but that men were the gold standard and women were the silver, you know? So you felt uh, a little bit second rate in God's eyes yeah, because of no your question. gender? because of my gender and I grew up, you know, that yeah. men, men had authority and women did not, and women would defer to men and men should be loving and caregiving and not be abusive right. and all that. But so, right, yes, I mean, right, but you were weaker. Like right yeah. now you're able to be so uh, cogent about that, but yeah. what did that look like in your life while, when that view yeah. was still there, but you weren't able to articulate it? Like how did it shape your experience in your life? Well, I was definitely highly focused on men. I wanted to be enough. I wanted to be desirable. Oh. I wanted to be chosen. Oh. And I was like, this is not going to go well for me. I oh. mean, again, remember the Coke bottle class. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm looking at everybody's high-waisted jeans, and I couldn't afford them. My, my family didn't have much money. Yeah. And so, anyway, so it was that sense of I, I was less than. I was less than not just men, but a lot of other women who were much prettier and, you know, and, and sort of fit the ideals that I was being offered around what the ideal woman was that seemed to be fitting it much better than I was. So did that drive a sense of like competitiveness between you and other women? Did I, am I hearing I that? actually don't think it did because okay. I didn't think I was going to win at it. <laughs> so I have to be honest. At the time, I wasn't thinking that way. I, I was more like, um, I think what it really did for me personally, I was, I think it drove me more into an interior life. I think I was trying to figure out, is this really the world I want to replicate? Because I wanted to be married. I wanted to be loved by a man. I... 
I wanted in many ways to walk in my mother's footsteps because I loved her and she was Mm -hmm. a very important person in my life. And she was a very loving, kind presence in my life. But I was very ambivalent about taking on her position. So I think, I think because I was also very socially astute, um, I was really trying to figure out what is, what is good and what is right. And do I believe in this idea? Is this really a true idea? Is this really who God is? So maybe unlike many adolescents, I don't know, know, maybe adolescents were thinking like this too then, but I think I was really trying to figure out what is true, who is God, are women really less than men? Yeah. And I was not so much trying to get men's attention during that time because I didn't didn't want it in a sense because I was afraid it meant I just had to fold into their life, marry them, have their babies and be subservient. And I was like, I don't want that. Yeah. So I just put my head down and didn't try to get male attention and just tried to find a path for myself, which was about me ultimately getting a PhD, earning my way through college, you know, kind of, and really kind of growing myself out of an ideology that that believed that women were less than men. It was, it really wasn't until I really gave up that idea that I let myself get married and I married somebody who I knew did not buy into that idea either. So, but it really took into, I was almost 30 by the time I got married. What, Mm -hmm. what brought you to that place of letting go of that idea? Well, a lot of hard earned struggle, and a, a daring starting in my early 20s to think what I thought and to not keep deferring to what I was told to think and to believe in a God who who valued my honest pursuit more than compliance. And so that's when I started letting myself really think my thoughts. And I believed in a God who could handle my thoughts and uh, could handle even if they were wrong yeah. so that there was some room to think about them. And the more I started stepping into what I felt was true, the more my life was opening up and the more I could feel it was true, that I really wasn't second class. I really was, I had strength. I had something to offer. I wasn't going to live my life in that way. Mm -hmm. So that's beautiful that this, this idea that there's a God that can handle your thoughts and even if they're quote unquote wrong. Yes. Uh, And, and that's such a, such a divide or such a, you yes. know, a fork in the road. So yes, it I, is. I, I want to dive in I a agree. little further. Like what sure. was the impetus of that fork in the road? Like what inspired that for you? Well, so something I think I've appreciated a little bit more as I've gotten older and looking back on my early experience is I had parents who weren't ideologically rigid. So they were all in with oh. Mormonism. They were all in, in the church. So like my dad served, my mom served, mm-hmm. We helped build the chapel here. I mean, we like in terms of action, we had people in our home. We were doing all of those things. Mm-hmm. But my parents weren't like, you should think this and don't ever quit. There was never that. There was freedom to question and think within my family. Yeah. And so I wasn't afraid of my questions within the context of my most core group. Oh, that's cool. Now, so that was very helpful. Yeah. Uh, but I also felt like, but our family's a little less than others because there's all these other better families that do believe everything and have testimonies of everything. And so I still felt like a second rate citizen in the church in many ways because I did have questions. So I, I decided to go on an LDS mission as a way to really pursue my faith wholeheartedly, to give it everything I had to read scriptures, to serve unquestioningly, to obey, mm-hmm. as, but, and kind of say like, God, please give me the answer. I will give everything up for it. Like, I really want to know what's true. And I don't want to struggle my whole life with questions. And so the, the short story is I went into a crisis. I did, I did obeyed everything. I did everything. I put all my questions aside. But shortly before my mission ended, I kind of went into full-on crisis of faith and um, said to God, like, this is it. I'm, I'm not going to eat till I get an answer. <laughs> I'm like, I've worked my butt off for an answer. I deserve one, all right? You went on a hunger so, strike. Yes, I did. And then 48 hours in, I'm like, I'm going to eat just a little. because. <laughs> 
I'm going to modify this a bit. <laughs> but like four days into that, and I really was in what I would call like full on pursuit. Like, yeah. I need to know. And on the fourth day of that, I got what I knew was my answer. Mm-hmm. And it was Semana Santa in Spain, which is Holy Week. I was watching these, I don't know, I'm, you know, you have your listeners know about this, but there's this this deep Catholic tradition of of these floats and people walking behind them shrouded in black, you know, people who've lost someone in the last year. There's just a lot of um, Catholic tradition and ritual that plays out in Semana Santa. So I was there watching these processions and the, the, the idea just came to me that was, I knew it was the answer is that there are false traditions everywhere and it's your job to live honestly and to pursue what's true and align yourself with what you believe is true. Wow. And I just knew that's what I had to do. And I wasn't hearing it like that's my particular calling. It, I, I heard it like that is true and that is scary because I kind of wanted all the answers handed to me and I sure. wanted the safety of it. I didn't want the moral responsibility of having to discern and live honestly. <laughs> so that was, so I was like, knew it was the answer, but I was not excited about the answer because I knew it would, <laughs> Love it. I knew it would cost me socially right. if I started to own my own thinking. Um, and it took me a couple of years to kind of live that out a little more courageously and mm-hmm. start really like leaning into it. But it helped to believe in a God and to feel that this was a kind of, um, that God knew me and it was okay, even if I wasn't understood mm-hmm. that living truthfully was the path to good and freedom. And I could then tolerate, and that's the right word. Cause it's, I never, I like people to like me, you know, I really do, but I could tolerate the invalidation of, of thinking through and honestly pursuing what I believed was good and true. So the thing that allowed you to tolerate that discomfort was this belief that, that God loved you anyway. Right. It's a way of like integrating actually a relational reality, like going back to this desire to belong. Uh-huh. It was belonging. I really, I mean, I, I carry this very much like God cares what I do. It cares if I'm honest, cares if I'm earnest, cares if I do the right thing. It's helpful. It's like an internalized relational frame that I think promotes my courage. Okay. You talked on another podcast a while ago about this idea of a tr- of transactional faith. Yes. And so here I'm hearing you say, I believe in a God that cares if I'm good yes. and honest and true and decent and those sorts of things. Yeah. Um, yeah. Will you reconcile the idea of God caring about it and with uh, transactionality? Well, actually, let's back up a little bit. Will you define sure. what transactional faith is? Yeah, the way. I mean, this is me kind of doing a definition off the fly, and sure. I don't even know. I, I even think transactional faith is my own phrase. I don't think that, but the idea that I have in mind is that you sort of this vending machine idea. It's more of a superstitious notion of God. It's a way of trying to get control through compliance. So if I obey all the rules, then I'm going to be protected from the vulnerabilities of life. If I defer my agency, my wishes, my thinking to the system, that I'm going to be blessed for that, i.e. protected, given a golden path, mansions on the other side. Right. And, and when we're in that more primitive thinking that I talked about earlier, that's a very tempting idea. It's a yeah. very compelling idea. I think what I'm talking about is not about, I don't, I don't live in a, a psychological reality where I think I'm any more protected than anyone else. I think I'm as vulnerable. I mean, good, good judgment might protect me. Good choices might protect me because of the impact of the choices themselves, but not a God that's rewarding me for good choices. Okay. So yeah, well you sort this out the difference between, so you're in this place now where you don't believe in a vending machine, God. Yes. And you believe in a God that still cares about what you do, still has an opinion on what you do. Yes. Yes. Right. So that's a God, that's a, like a relationship that inspires my courage for me to be my best self. Yeah. 
for me to function in a godly way, i.e. the good, yeah. right? So it's a way of like inspiring my courage. But it's not about I'll protect you from evil in the world. I'll protect you from hard things. No, <laughs> I, I just don't believe that. I don't think I'm any more safe than any other person that God loves, right? <laughs> which is all of us. Mm -hmm from living in a in an imperfect world in which bad things happen to good people. And so mm. I don't think that way. So it's also more like the most I have control over is the wisdom of my judgments. And I only have a little control over that because we're all blind to things and we're all blind to ourselves and our own minds and our own limitations often. So, but living wisely will yield good fruit because you're not having to live in the negative consequences of dumb choices there is a place for an obedience frame because if it at minimum protects you from highly negative impact, right? It's a good place to start. Like stay out of the but, road when you're six. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Don't touch the hot stove. You know, it's, there's a protective aspect of that, but it's a starting place, right. not an end in itself. Yeah. So pardon if I'm asking something that's overly obvious, but, so I'm hearing you say you believe in this God that is um, cares what you do, uh, not a vending machine God, also is not on the hook to protect you from stuff, mm -hmm. like not playing favorites with you or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. So what motivates you to, um, to please and honor God? Well, I don't know that I think of it as pleasing God, but uh, maybe, that's the, maybe that's there. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you care about God's idea of you. Yeah, but yes, I do. But yeah. I think it's it's a little broader than that. It's more because the good is the path to freedom. And what I mean is the more that I live with integrity, the freer my life is, the freer I am psychologically. So that's very pragmatic. The more, be the more beautiful life is, yeah. the more self-respect I have and the more respect I have for humanity. Right. The more self-compassion I have, the more compassion. So it's like the only way to live. I mean, there's a selfish aspect of it. Yeah, it's very practical. Really. What I'm hearing from right? you is like very pragmatic. Yeah, it's like it's not worth it doing this lesser thing. It might feel good in the moment, but then I have to live in the consequences of that. And I want to self-correct. I want to live as well as I can because it's the only way to really live. I see the cost of people living indulgently because I work with people all the time. I see the cost of being lacking courage, mm -hmm. of not being morally courageous, of just seeking other people's approval. There's a high cost to the individual. There is to the relationships, but that ultimately is to the individual too, because a lot of people are like polluting the air and then they've got to breathe it. They're wrecking their relationships and then they have no peaceful relationship to exist within. Right. So even at times where I'm like, I don't want to be nice because my husband's pissing me off right now or something. But even if I can get it back to, but I want to be the kind of person that's fair and I want to respect myself and I don't want to undermine my relationship because it's a really hard way to go ultimately, right. even if it feels good right now. So I guess I believe in God and I believe in the good and I believe that it is the path to true freedom and joy in a world in which there's a ton of suffering. Yeah. So there's like, there's no other antidote and it's not a perfect antidote. Suffering is still real. And, you know, we're all going to die and say goodbye to the ones we love most. And it's, it's unbearable thinking about it, but to live it well, to love wholeheartedly, to embrace the precious life that we live in. I don't know of another way to do it. Love that. We've, we've talked a little bit about the idea of, um, this may be a bit implicit in the setup of this question, but the idea of our um, father figure and how that, you know, uh, is a template for our conception of God. But what about mom? Mm. What is the power of, of mother in our experience? or it, How does our experience with mom shape our experience of the divine? Well, we... I think we definitely need our feminine divine. I mean, now LDS theology provides for a mother and father in heaven, but mother in heaven, as I grew up learning about her, was 
not up to be discussed, understood. She was too off limits, pedestal, too pedestalized <laughs> yeah. to yeah. be even talked about. Right. And right. so there's this idea that even the most ideal feminine is still less than. Right. So that's kind of a painful idea. That's a weird. At least for me, it was. Yeah. And I remember as a uh, when I was at Brigham Young University taking a women's sociology course and the professor um, had some early hymns that were, I don't know where their origin was, if they were LDS in origin or another, I, I don't remember, but they were in celebration of mother in heaven. Mm. And I remember we sang them in class and it brought me to tears Wow! because it made me realize I was longing for her. Yeah. And to only identify with a male God, that the ideal was male when I was female, was something I'd done my whole life without fully recognizing the cost to my psyche and self in doing that. So I do think about God as mother and father in heaven, as, right. a, as, a, as a feminine and masculine div divine. I have a theory about why we don't talk about mother in heaven. God's divorced and there's a restraining <laughs> order. <laughs> He's just, I think I heard Louis CK do something about that. It was pretty funny. <laughs> I hope I didn't steal it from him. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't know. I can't remember if that's exactly how he did it, but it was something like that, that they were. <laughs> nice. Nice. Oh, well, we're, we're, um, gosh, we only have a few minutes left and I've got a hundred questions, um, mm. that I, I wanted to ask you about, but, uh, speaking of the divine feminine, um, in things are really wacky in our society right now. Mm, uh, would you comment yeah. a little bit on the on what divine femininity looks like in uh, a, a modern woman? You know, it's 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 a little scary for me to start talking in gender roles, and I'll say why because because gender roles have been so often used to limit and restrict who people are like i sort of grew up learning like to be feminine or to be the ideal female was to be passive nurturing accommodating right basically men are the show and women are the backup staff that kind of idea sure and so there was like a natural like screw that i'm gonna do what i want to do blah 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 which i think is fine too i think there's it's healthy because all of us are an integration of masculine and feminine to some degree mm -hmm. but what i think has sometimes been lost in our society and in a lot of sexual relationships and within the psyches and souls of a lot of men and women is the ability to belong to who you are as a masculine or feminine character. So I don't want to over stereotype. I like a lot of the kind of Taoist um, notions of, and I think it's Tao, I mean, but, but of masculine and feminine. And there is something to, like the idea that we coexist, we all have both. We coexist, that we us? shape one another. Exactly. That okay. kind of yin and yang idea. Ah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, the feminine would be more that yin energy. And I think it's more intuitive and earthy and emotive and sensual and creative. Mm. So was your where the masculine's more structured and so on. But go ahead. Oh, yeah, I was, was going to say, it was your in initial hesitation at my question uh, based on this idea that we we actually both have, we have both energies within us. And so you we have both. It's kind right. of a misnomer just to say, well, we're going to talk to the biological women right now about your feminine energy because yeah, men right, have exactly. some of it too, and they need to exactly. honor it. In and, and the more we evolve, I think the more in some ways we live up to our, our preferred energy but also integrate more of the other side as well. So we become more broader and flexible. So I hesitate to define like father in heaven is this, you know, he's assertive and whatever, right. and mother in heaven's intuitive because it, it's just like, I don't know, it kind of pulls me back to this kind of more primitive way of thinking that I don't like, but I can't say that I, I don't know that I really try to define as much as I see it as, I think to go back to what, an earlier question that I don't know if I fully, like I think that in some ways what has happened is I've gotten older and less dependent on approval is I'm just more willing to be who I am and to embrace my sort of natural feminine self. My more, I have a lot of masculine energy too. Like, you know, I, that's true as well. Mm -hmm. But like I, 
love femininity. I love dressing up. I love dresses. <laughs> I, know, I know that doesn't define femininity, but I'm just saying like, it's such an amazing part of being human. And there's so much capacity and strength and wisdom in it. And I think a lot of women in this over over identification with the masculine are trying to make them it's, it's like a dis identification with themselves in a, as a way of trying to claim legitimacy. And I feel like I sort of did that for a while. Yeah. And it, it's like allowing myself to fully be female, woman, feminine self and know that there's real strength in it. And I think when I stopped trying to earn it and just started to own who I am, well, I at least know what it feels like in me. But that's d different from the next woman or man that is embracing who they are in a strong way. It's when you stop living with apology or trying to be what everyone else tells you to be and you allow yourself to stand in your strength, be who you are in a way that blesses your life and the lives of those around you. I love that so much. <laughs> that is so beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. It, to, to wrap things up, you know, a lot of the people that listen to the show are interested in the idea of authenticity, you know, and living mm -hmm. life on their own terms and, and living, you know, true to themselves. And, you know, you, you talked about it sounds like you had pretty cool parents. Yeah. You know, they, they, they sound like I really do. exceptional people and yeah. which um, gave you, you know, I think you did a really beautiful job of explaining how that created an on-ramp to your spiritual experience and, and the way you conceive of God now and, and your relationship to the divine and to yourself and to other people. There are people who are listening to the show right now who are saying, well, Dr. Finlayson Fife, you know, congrats on your awesome parents, but mine were horrible. And, yeah. and I'm stuck and I want to live authentically. Um, I want to free myself from these things, but I'm, I'm really, really stuck. What would you suggest for people who are coming from that place that like see it, they see it in you. They know it's possible for themselves, but they're just stuck. Well, um, let me see. What's the simple answer. There's so much to say there. <laughs> I mean, one thing is that when you grow up in a certain system, you can't see it usually. Yeah. It's like, you know, you're swimming in the, the bowl, the goldfish bowl, and you don't know another world because it's the one that your mind wired up around. So any good therapy or, or good learning process is in many ways waking you up to the system that you grew up in, but also the system that you are participating in unwittingly. Mm -hmm. Right? So, so many good clients of mine, they come by it honestly they learned a harsh world. They are reinventing one in all of their relationships. Right. And they don't want to. It's not like they're like, oh, I'm setting out to make relationships as miserable as the ones that I knew as a child. Yeah. But they don't know another way. And so until they can kind of wake up to it in themselves, then it becomes, well, it takes a ton of courage. I think, you know, we use the word faith is linked to a kind of morality. I see it as courage is the same word. Because you have to be willing to break from the system you know that your mind finds comfort in, even if it's miserable, it knows it, it knows you know how to be a self within that. And you instead take the courageous path of doing better, offering better than what you received, and therefore getting to live in better. But you have to, this is a, a mentor of mine, Dr. Schnarch, this is one of his quotes that is my favorite, which is you, you don't think your way into a new way of living. Or, or behaving, you behave your way into a new way of thinking. And that's back to the clients I was talking about this morning. It's like they started like taking more courageous choices, confronting their own participation in the marital misery, rather than always focused on the other and trying to get the other to change. They started changing their own behavior and a whole new world opened up to them, a new way of thinking that they now understood, not just in their minds, but throughout their whole sense of being. But there's wow. no other way to do it than to see yourself accurately and act better. Act more in line with your higher self. And you act your way into a, a wiser ideal, a wiser God. You know, I'm not as invested in the idea of an anthropomorphized God, although I find it easier to relate to that. Mm -hmm. But I, I'm more invested in who is the God you worship. It's exposed through your actions. Right. So even if you're like, I don't believe in God and I'm self-serving. Well, that's the God you believe in then that self-service is the name of the game. Sure. But you that God will 
bless you <laughs> through your a tortured life. <laughs> so you want to be careful who the God is you worship because of what it what it creates. It's interesting this this quote you offered from your mentor that we behave our way into better thinking. This, this ties yes. right into what you did at the opening of the podcast. You put on some lipstick. That's right. <laughs> you said it makes yes. me smarter. Is that what you said? Like, yeah, I said it like brings my IQ up. Every, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm claiming my feminine self. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so what's what's yeah. like for, for people who are really wanting to step into their authenticity more? What is yep. a behavior that they can do that will lead their mind more into this authenticity? Well, you know, you, the golden rule is a brilliant one. You know, do unto others as you'd have others do unto you. If you could just like hold yourself to that moment to moment, day after day, you'd, you'd act your way into a new way of living. Wow. It's a simple one. What are the things you do that you know drive your spouse crazy and you know it's legitimate? If you're just honest enough with yourself. I mean, that's the thing. The truth sets you free, but the truth kind of hurts. <laughs> okay. But what's something you know you do that's indulgent and unfair? And if you were to stop doing it, your world starts changing. The way you impact others, how trustworthy you are, how you feel about yourself. It just takes some courage, though. And it's easy to just fall asleep again and have your your habits take over. But if you stay awake, right, you have a chance, a fighting chance, of, of climbing your way into a better life. I love that. Dr. Finlayson Fife, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That, that's a beautiful note to end on. I uh, hope you have an amazing day, and I really appreciate you sharing all this with us. Thank you. There you have it, Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Five. Thank you so much for your time. I immensely enjoyed that conversation. I uh, hope we get to do that again sometime. There are obviously a hundred other rabbit holes we could easily jump down. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you want to get in touch with Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife, you can do so in a couple of ways. First of all, follow her on Instagram. You'll find her at Finlayson Fife. That's F-I-N-L-A-Y-S-O-N-F-I-F-E, Finlayson Fife. Or go visit her website, which is finlayson-fife.com. Again, same spelling, F-I-N-L-A-Y-S-O-N-F-I-F-E.com. The easiest thing to do is to just drop by the show notes over at soulanarchist.com. And I've got links to her website, to her social media, and everything you need to know about Dr. Finlayson Fife. If you enjoyed listening to this episode, we ask that you please rate and review the podcast so that more people can find and benefit from this information. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Finlayson Fife and the work that she does, follow the links in the show notes below. For more information about her online courses, live events, and her free Facebook group.